0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Shops are open, pubs are serving takeaway beer and the football is back without the fans. But this hasn't been a week of back to normal headlines for the government. Instead, it's been forced into a U-turn on its policy towards free school meals by a 22-year-old Manchester United footballer. How did number 10 find itself outplayed? And is a U-turn always a bad move? In an effort to get on the front foot, the Prime Minister announced the merger of the Department for International Development and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He says this is a logical move, but why now? And what will scrapping DFID, as it's called, mean for Britain's place in the world? Back at home, we'll be taking a look at another big change in decades of government practice. This government has just announced that it will take the much-criticised private probation services back into its own hands. Will more follow? Joining me in our virtual studio today are the IFG's constitutional expert, Kath Haddon. Hi, Kath. Hello. Hi. Tim Durrant, who leads our ministerial work and the creation and demolition of Whitehall departments. Hi, Tim.
1: Hi. Good to be back.
0: And we've got with us Jill Rutter, IFG senior fellow and veteran of Number 10 and the Treasury. Hi, Jill. Good morning. Great. Well, let's kick off. This has been a week where we are spoilt for choice what to talk about, but let's start with these U-turns. A letter, some tweets, a lot of broadcast interviews, front pages, nervous MPs, and suddenly an 80-strong Tory majority didn't look enough. The Prime Minister's decision to make an abrupt U-turn on free school meals and extend the voucher scheme over the summer holidays looks embarrassing. However much, it says, it now welcomes the intervention from England and Manchester United forward Marcus Rashford. How did the government end up backed into a corner like that?
2: It's one of these interesting ones because the policy was sitting there for a long while and uh, Scotland and Wales had already taken action on it. So it didn't come out of nowhere. The government had uh, extended this voucher scheme for free school meals over the Easter holidays and a lot of people were talking about the impact over the summer holidays. You also, It came up at Prime Minister's questions last week um, and the opposition were planning to cover it in their opposition day debates this week. Uh, so this didn't come out of nowhere, but suddenly Marcus Rashford had written to all MPs asking them to set aside politics, to set aside rivalries and actually come together and do this. So he he provided a sort of platform for the government to be able to reconsider and try to co-opt other MPs into it. And What was really interesting is the government made it more difficult for themselves by initially refusing to do so and to budge at all. And, you know, you had briefings coming out saying that they weren't going to do this. So then when the Prime Minister said that it was the first he'd heard about it that morning, that was quite surprising because it had been running in the newspapers for two days. His MPs were expected to rebel and vote with the opposition to try and bring this about. So you would assume that somebody in Number 10 had been keeping him informed on all of this. But in the end, they made the U-turn. Gavin Williams said it was fantastic that Marcus Rashford had drawn this to the government's attention. Um, And they're sort of presenting it as now was something that they have been glad to be able to do, even though, obviously, it took a bit of pulling for them to, to get round to changing it.
0: Jill, what do you reckon? I mean, does it show that the government is listening or that it's not thinking ahead or, or that it's lost its political antennae?
3: I think it probably shows all of those things, actually. It's uh, it's really quite interesting because I think the first thing that it shows is just how thinly rooted this policy decision was uh, if ministers had actually taken a properly conscious decision that this wasn't the best use of resources over the summer holiday, that actually they were going to do something else, you know? For example, we've heard a bit about catch-up schemes, uh, holiday clubs for children that would actually bring them into settings where they might be given given food, and that this wasn't an issue. That they'd looked at what Scotland, Wales has done, as Kath had mentioned, decided this wasn't right for England. Then they shouldn't have just been blown over with that eighty majority in half a minute. And frankly, I think one reason why a lot of Conservative MPs are very concerned is it does show a lack of political antennae in Downing Street.
0: And these are not politicians who are, who are uninterested in, in the public mood. I mean, this is, you know, one of the things that Tory MPs thought that Boris Johnson, at least he could do that, which was read the country.
3: You're right. That's what makes this so amazing. I mean, the fact that Keir Starmer, who, you know, have been chalking up U-turn after U-turn at Prime Minister's questions, raised it at PMQs. Labour had put it down for an opposition day debate this week. Uh, there were people on the radio, you know, well-known conservatives, prominent conservatives on the shows saying, well, we're really conflicted on this. We think we may vote with Labour. And, you know, it started as a trickle, but it turned that all MPs, including probably even the Prime Minister, received the letter from Marcus Rashford, an incredibly sort of charismatic spokesperson who could speak from the personal experience of being a kid whose family benefited from free school meals. And the government really was on a hiding to nothing. But the fact it made so little attempts to defend... I mean, if I was sort of Grant Shapps, who was got the sort of hospital pass of defending the policy that morning on the Today programme before the U-turn, I would be pretty furious to then see... Other colleagues going out and saying, what a great, interview! what an idea. You yeah, know, we hadn't thought of that. Thanks so much, Marcus, for pointing this out to us. Who knew? I would be pretty livid. And we've seen worst examples when they've U-turned during an interview. Uh, I think that happened to David Willits at one point on the Andrew Marr show, and he had to be told that the policy had changed mid-interview. But this was pretty bad. And it is establishing, I think, a dangerous reputation in Downing Street for tin-earedness, one of the sort of interesting things is do they have enough, you know, Matt Hancock famously said, well, we may not look, you know, as diverse as some people think we should, but we have diversity of thought. What they don't really have is diversity of much-lived experience there. You know, it took Marcus Rashford with a very different sort of experience to come and bring this to the fore. And then they crumbled. Uh, And I think those two things are profoundly worrying and saying a lot about how much thought is actually going into some of these decisions in Downing Street, and yeah, how robust will they be? Well, there obviously are different views. Um, yeah, I mean, if
0: we, if, we, if we try and reach into why we think they did it, they were obviously thinking, of, of, look, we don't want to keep putting money uh, out to support uh, um, every, everyone during this. They're beginning to think of how to turn this off and change, change direction.
2: And that's one of the things that's been said. It's not the money itself, because this was about 120 million compared to the huge sums that they're spending on uh, you know, the furlough scheme and other things. This isn't a lot of money, but supposedly the Treasury view was that they didn't want to set a precedent that basically means they'll have to do this year after year. Um, and given that the government are starting to think about how do they ease back on all of the economic support, that presumably was their rationale. But As Jill says, if you're going to do that, you need to have a counter argument as to how you're not going to let people suffer during this time, what you're going to be doing instead. And they didn't seem to have thought that through or even really gauged the sense of conservative backbenchers because it's becoming a bit of a problem that a new government with an 80 strong majority, is being sort of pulled around so much by its own backbenchers, and that begs the question about how much is the prime minister, is his operation keeping in touch with the sort of mood on the ground? Tim, yeah, Tim,
0: yeah, you, 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 I mean, you've been a civil servant, and uh, for us, you advise uh, ministers privately as well as writing um, about what they should do. I mean, w- you know, when is a U turn a good U turn, and when is it um, a mistake, if you like?
1: So I think it's an interesting question. It's, we were talking earlier about, uh, Kath and I were talking this morning about uh, the difference between a U-turn and a tweak. And I think, you know, if you can show that you're listening to people, you're learning from what things, are you know, you're learning from events as events are changing, then you have to react. When, you know, when the facts change, you change your mind. That's that's sensible and that's welcome. Um, I think this is, this is a classic U-turn, right? In that it's sort of, you know, it's something that nobody really thought about, I don't think. And then there was a lot of pressure um, that was... Brought to bear. I think the thing this reminds me of is Philip Hammond's U-turn after his first budget, the the National Insurance uh, contributions that he raised on uh, self-employed people, uh, and there was a similar there was a big backlash in the press. Laura Koonsberg uh, tweeted about this breaking uh, a Conservative manifesto commitment, and it got badged as the white van man tax, and. Uh, within a couple of days, they had to sort of unwind it. And that was, you know, the similar thing where you have this big sort of media focus on one particular issue, which actually in the scale of, you know, a budget, or in this case, the response to a global pandemic is, it's a very small policy decision, but people narrow down and focus in on something specific because like jill said you know it's something that touches on people's real lives
0: well what do you think tim of i mean the changes that rishi sunak the the chancellor has made so far because he's had a lot of tweaks if you can call them but but um it sounds as if we're not calling those u-turns
1: well i think i think there's there's good argument for sort of adapting as we go along right and you know to use the overused word of the year we are in unprecedented times and nobody has ever responded to to a pandemic like this before so it makes sense to sort of flex and see see how you go and as you say that's that's the case on the economic side with um extra support for small businesses and the question about um you know those who started jobs just before the the lockdown was introduced and you know furlough support for for self-employed people
0: so what we reckon um, might be the next few turns. Jill, you've been doing a marvellous event for us on, on science and uh, and use of government's use of science, and there's been a lot of talk about the uh, one-metre, two-metre
3: debate. I'm not sure that's going to be a U-turn as such. Uh, I think that's probably going to be what we might describe as a bit of a policy evolution. Um, and actually, one of the things that was really interesting on the science uh, science podcast we did was that uh, we invited people who sort of look at what I might call hard scientists. And one of the things they were all saying was one of the problems with the advice coming into ministers from SAGE uh, was there weren't enough social scientists on SAGE, there weren't enough economists on SAGE. So ministers were getting this rather undiluted, quite hard quite risk-averse view from the disciplines that were on SAGE. But they all thought SAGE had the wrong membership, which I thought was very interesting, it was particularly impassioned.
0: But isn't that the point of SAGE? The S is for science, Um, It's supposed to be scientific advice and then the
3: economists can can make hay with it. I think this gets into the debate about where does science end and merge in. But they were all very much of the view that there was too narrow a range of disciplines in that advice that was coming to ministers. Now, I would say, actually, you don't need economic advice on SAGE in the sense that it's coming in. To government from the Treasury, Treasury is a perfectly competent department, uh, able to give economic advice. <laughs> you don't need that. This is an ex-Treasury person speaking. It's yes, good to hear. There is an ex-Treasury person, well, Tim's ex-Treasury. Anyway, Treasury is perfectly competent. Treasury actually, yeah. I think, is is emerging uh, at the moment with its reputation enhanced through right, this, right so a which tick. is yes. quite interesting. Um, but I think one of the things that's very interesting is because the sage advice is independent. It's uh, because the sage advice is independent. It has a sort of status which the advice from the rest of government on, you know, some of the implementation issues, some uh, which may actually mean you can't follow through on the science advice, on the implications for, you know, the economy, appears to be a bit sort of dirtier and more political. So it's pitting ministers to, you know, compromise the scientific purity of the sage advice. And SAGE is very conservative. And people who go to SAGE, you know, say, actually, you know, the scientists disagree. Uh, you know, they basically spend ages. There are about 50 people participating. They bombard poor Patrick Valance, who has to make sense of this, with their views, most of which is that the government's getting it wrong, moving too fast and things like that. And that really, it's up to the ministers then to impose a different discipline rather than actually have that discussion being debated out in SAGE. And mm-hmm. I hadn't expected that you know bob watson who's the former chief scientific advisor at defra the white house and the world bank was possibly the most impassioned for saying actually This is only one slice of the advice that should be coming to ministers. They need a much wider range of advice and actually that should be coming through the SAGE mechanisms.
0: Well, I I don't know. They they do get that, just not from SAGE. I'm I'm, I'm listening to that, but thinking, I mean, the the government is not short of of, of economic advice. But Kath and Tim, what do you, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, other, uh, um, it was a brilliant event, Joe, thanks. Um, Other candidates for U-turns talk about the borders. Yeah.
2: Well, the other one that's, uh, yeah, is is the quarantine policy of, um, you know, anyone coming into the country um, having to go through 14 days of isolation, um, which obviously affects, you know, both people traveling to the UK, but also um, if anyone wants to go on holiday, how are they then affected uh, in terms of having to have a sort of book in a two week period afterwards where they're not able to go out and about there's been a lot of pushback again from conservative MPs concerned about the impact on tourism, um, you know, about sort of the impact on the, the economy more generally. There's again, obviously, wellbeing being concerns in terms of people's ability to go abroad. And there's questions about how you can work with other countries to create these so-called air bridges or, you know, where you, you work out a sort of bilateral agreement with another country that you will accept their people and they will accept yours and so forth. The UK obviously has a particular problem around this because the rates of infection are still so high compared to to some other countries. But I think what's really interesting about this stuff is that, you know, we talk about all of the advice as if it's sort of objective and so forth. But a lot of the areas where these things are turning into u-terms is where there's a real political debate about it so it is about the economic advice um, it is also about the science and whether or not you need to have that 14 day lockdown whether or not you need to have that two meter distancing mm. but these things mm. are turning into political battles and one of the reasons mm. why the government struggles is because it likes to set things up as a sort of we will do this policy it doesn't set it up as we're thinking of doing this policy
0: We are going to absolutely come back to that question, but we need to move on because it was such a busy week and talk about um, mergers of departments. Um, Tim, this is very much your area. The Prime Minister announced that, um, that the government was going to merge the Department for International Development with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and I guess this shouldn't have come as a surprise because uh, he had said that he was very fond of this idea, but it really has divided opinion, and three of his predecessors including david cameron have come out and criticized the decision so tim why has he done it
1: well like you said i mean i think he's always wanted to do this he said uh when after having resigned from theresa may's cabinet as a backbencher he said that he thought that um diff needed to be brought back into the um into the foreign office and actually this is this is a hokey-cokey department right it goes in and out and in and out so basically well, it's every been out conservators- for a long
0: time i mean uh, it has been out
1: for a long time yeah out, so you know, it's Tony, spun out Tony in- blair
0: yeah spun it out and
1: Exactly, in 1997, and the coalition and then the Conservative government after 2015 and 2017 didn't bring it back in, which previous Conservative administrations had done. Um, but now is the time. Um, he he said in his statement to to the Commons that he that I think there were sort of three main reasons for it. He argued this would get better value for money. Um, it would allow the UK to speak with one voice internationally, and it also meant that there's one person, according to the Prime Minister, that there's one person, the Foreign Secretary or the Foreign and Development Secretary, as I suppose we now have to call him, uh, who can make the real trade offs between where we where the UK is spending its its overseas budgets.
0: And what he said isn't it is, is that he doesn't want the UK. Uh, trying to um, exert pressure on one country, and then with another part of the government, DFID is giving it an awful lot of money, or giving poor people in that country. But then the response to that from uh, people in DFID and the aid community is: Look, the mandate of DFID is very clear. It's about poverty reduction. That's not the sole aim of Britain's foreign policy. And if you don't go out and help those poor people, they're not, they're not going to get the help. And it really is a very uh, fierce was- battle. Um, it was quite interesting. The Prime Minister oh.
3: gave a list of countries that he noted that he thought the UK should be doing more for. Uh, and I think he said, you know, why are we giving so much to Tanzania and not to Ukraine? But one of the reasons, is because Ukraine's a middle-income country, it wouldn't count as development assistance if you gave money. You may want to give money to Ukraine, but you don't give it out of the development budget if you want it to count. And remember, this is one of the this is the only area there, where we have legislation. There are legislation. not many
0: people living in poverty yeah. in Ukraine compared to other countries yeah, the, 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 on that list. Sorry, yeah, It's, Joe, it's
3: one of the only areas where the government has a legislative commitment, which he hasn't undone. Undone, and the prime minister actually said, "I'm not about to undo it," which is the 0.7% legislative commitment to spend. You know, internationally defined definition of aid GDP. It's very interesting. Do they actually now have a go at saying, "Well, it's actually going to be our definition of aid, not the international definition"? Or is the next move going to be to undo that 0.7% target that the Cameron administration put into law?
0: And in any case, in a year when GDP is going to go down, um, is that something going to take a big bite out of DFID's budget but I remember when it back when um, this is um you know like ages ago but when it was being set up and the foreign office budget was much bigger than it's it's about two billion that it's got at the moment and DFID's was, was much 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 smaller than the 14 or so billion it's it's, it's got at the, at the moment and I think people didn't quite anticipate that their funding would be so um much apart as it is at the moment so the-
1: absolutely uh, but I think but but as Jill says you know this merger won't change that in that yes the new department will have a much bigger budget because it will absorb the aid budget but that money is still ring-fenced for the internationally defined um, uh, aid target so it won't it's not like suddenly our ambassadors are going to have a much bigger sort of Ferrero Roche budget or anything like that it is still aid money.
3: Though I think they though I think they have used some of the uh, I know Simon McDonald came to the IFG a couple of years ago, the perm- yeah, Permanent Secretary, and he clearly had his eyes on some of the DFID budget. And I think there has been some use of what you might call you know, aid money spent through other departments to fund the expansion of the UK network in Africa, bigger presence in some African countries and things like that. So I think the Foreign Office has long had designs on uh, getting a bit more bang for some of that uh, money, though the DFID repost would be, What the Foreign Office isn't good at is spending big programs. It's not a big program spending department. That's not what the FCO does. And I think one of the things that people are very worried about is that those skills that are in DFID, which are highly respected. The government loves the term world beating. DFID is regarded by a lot of people as a world beating development organization. And a lot of people, I think, were worried that it will be a less attractive place for development professionals to go and that that sort of reputation of DFID that's been established since 1997 will diminish with this move. And that's one of the things the Prime Minister to watch, because that's quite a big source of UK soft power, which matters in the global Britain narrative that's looking beyond our borders. What can we learn
0: from previous mergers uh, or demolitions of departments?
1: I mean, I think the, the key thing is it's it's hard work, you know, changing any organisation is hard work. Changing uh, an organisation that employs thousands of people and has billions of pounds of annual budget is definitely hard work. So so the PM said, you know, he wanted, wanted to do this now because it will get us ready for Uh, the presidency of the G7 that the UK has next year and the International Climate Conference. But actually, I think realistically, this merger is still going to be taking place all the way through 2021. Um, Our our work on on previous mergers showed that it takes about two years until the newly formed department is really sort of fighting fit. And so there's a big risk of distraction. You know, he says that this is sort of global Britain speaking with one voice. Actually, I think it's a risk that it's two departments arguing with each other for the next sort of 18 months about who sits where, whose boss is who, what budget goes where, who gets paid how much, what the email addresses say. You know, there's a lot of, of sort of behind-the-scenes work that needs to happen. That, not, that... Not,
2: yeah, not least because, I mean, one of the thing, key things about Diffid is that... it. There's a lot of crossover between um, people that go and work into DFID and people who go and work in NGOs and in in civil society more generally. So the key thing for the department is how do you retain that level of expertise and how do you make sure that that's then combined with the best of the foreign office? And remember, this isn't just about what they do in the head office. This is also about how people work in country together. And that has been one of the difficulties that the sort of you know, uh, international facing departments have had about working together well in country. They learned a lot of lessons in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, of how to make sure that different departments worked well together. And they'll need to make sure that they're focusing on all of that, because otherwise you just get lots of different people pulling in different directions, even though they're all sitting under one big umbrella brand.
3: But compared to some other ministering of government changes we've had, they have given some notice, even though the staff were sort of, you know, found out from a Laura Kinsberg tweet, you know, this isn't happening till September. So it's not one of those things that happens overnight. We've seen those during reshuffles when you need to, you know, bolter the ego of a minister or something like that. Uh, it was actually quite uh, already in train, if you like, because we had those joint ministerial yeah. appointments. So there are a lot of ministers now for all the areas where we have development programs who are joint ministers in both the FCO and DFID. So the direction of travel was in that sense quite clear. So they are sort of actually doing it in a more planned way than some of the other changes. Though so I think Tim's right, is next year really the year you would choose with this sort of very big other agenda the other question mark yeah,
0: but uh, jill but I, I wanted to ask you at that point uh, there's a great point to make because i uh, and, and you talked about the direction of travel i just i want to read out one sentence from the the um government statement which it says the prime minister has also announced that the uk's trade commissioners will come under the authority of uk ambassadors overseas bringing more coherence to our international presence so is trade being folded into and even the department of international trade
3: well, that's that's very true. I mean, of course, in country, they're all they've already got this policy called one HMG, which means that actually the you know ambassador is supposed to represent all of government. And there are loads of government departments who have mm. interests in other countries. So uh, so just taking over DFID doesn't sort of resolve that. So they're already supposed to be unified. But we knew that Boris Johnson as foreign secretary. We had that bit of a turf war when Theresa May made Boris Johnson, foreign secretary, Liam Fox, trade secretary and David Davis Dexter said, Boris Johnson basically thought that the Foreign Office should be doing all of those things. And he put, there was a big tussle over commercial diplomacy and who got that. The Foreign Office got some money from that. But you know he's always had his eyes as Foreign Secretary on international trade. And he interestingly gave examples of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand as countries which had merged their development ministries into their foreign ministries Really interestingly, those three countries also have international trade in their foreign ministries. Arguably, it looms much larger because they have a sort of lesser security role than it does for the UK. They're not on the UN Security Council. I mean,
0: does this tell us something about its its view of trade? In that you could put trade, for example, in the business department, base as it's called. Does it tell us something that that Boris Johnson and this government see trade as part of of foreign policy, if you like, rather than? part of the kind of economic business
3: side of the of the, uh, of the uh, government i think i think there has long been and i think the alignment of the trade commissions who are the people that we have regional trade commissions who are supposed to promote business opportunities both the possibility of trade agreements but also the more conventional sort of business promotion in these regions i think there's the successive governments you know of both stripes Have thought that the Foreign Office doesn't do enough to promote the interests of British business abroad. And I think this is a sort of further attempt to give that a kick. I think in logic, in the longer run, this may herald a merger of the International Trade Department into this new, uh, Boris Johnson I think referred to as a super department, so it might become a super duper department and finally take over international trade.
0: So obviously a big big chance for the Foreign Office, but at the same time uh, there's going to be a lot of really quite precise things the Prime Minister seems to be expecting of them, and and, um, we've all been discussing uh, the, you know, the the culture wars, if you like, that might erupt between these very, very different feeling departments, well we're definitely going to come back to that, and we're all writing a lot on it, and, and Tim and Kath, in particular, um, have um, put out much on this particular question. Let's turn to our third big subject of the day. Coronavirus is a reason for the government to do pretty much anything, it seems. Last week, the Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland, said coronavirus and the need for the government to have more flexibility was a big reason for bringing probation services back in-house. He didn't refer to what has been a rather mixed scorecard, that is really putting it politely, since Chris Grayling, remember him, pushed through the outsourcing of probation services seven years ago. This week, a new IFG report explores the whole issue of whether and when services should be put back into government hands, and what should be done to make sure that any insourcing, that's the technical term, believe it or not, is a success. One of the authors of the report, Tom Sass, IFG senior researcher, joins us now. Hi, Tom. Hi. What are your thoughts on the probation decision?
4: It's clearly the right call, Bromin. I mean, let's not put too fine a point on it. It's been a complete disaster. Um, m- many listeners might be familiar with the hashtag failing grailing. You know, over the last seven years, the probation system has been a real mess. Uh, firstly, they rushed the outsourcing of it. They did it, you know, on a really short time scale without a bunch of providers that were actually capable of delivering the service. But the much bigger problem has been actually they've completely failed to design a contract that would get these providers to deliver an adequate level of service. You just can't reduce such a complicated thing like probation to a set of contractual requirements.
0: I mean, that is the point, isn't it? That it's something that shouldn't have been outsourced, and we've argued and you've argued in, in, our, in, in, in long reports for us, um, because it doesn't lend itself to something you actually stipulate in the contract, the difference between a good probation officer and someone who... It doesn't pay enough attention to particular cases, it can't be spelled out in the contract.
4: Exactly. It wasn't a service that was well suited to the types of benefits and approaches that the private sector can bring. I mean, the IFG's got a long record on this. We actually wrote uh, a report back in 2012, before, way before probation was outsourced, saying it wasn't didn't have the types of characteristics that would be well suited to this. I mean, there's an interesting thing about the timing of this decision. You know, the government has recognised for a year or so now that this probation outsourcing hasn't worked. They've only just decided to fully insource this service. Uh, And they've said that coronavirus is one of the reasons for that. They want more flexibility to be able to ramp up or ramp down or change the design. Perhaps they are also using that as a bit of cover to recognise that this was...
0: I wondered whether you were going (laughs) to get that. (laughs)
4: Uh, And they have the opportunity to to clear it up.
0: Jill, this is a big change in philosophy, isn't it? I mean, outsourcing has gone on, I mean, starting with Margaret Thatcher, through Tony Blair and so on. This has been decades of thinking, you know, if there is a private sector solution, let's try and find it.
3: I think it's actually a very welcome move. I think it's a very good move. I'm not sure the government really needed the cover of coronavirus to do it and that excuse, sounds a bit stretched that you had to do this because of coronavirus. But actually, I think having a much more pragmatic horses for courses view, where actually does going outside add value? Where, and some people are discussing this in context of the NHS app, where does actually buying off the shelf someone else's solution offer the best way forward? Where should we actually do it in-house? Because... As Thomas said, one of the repeated problems in these outsourcing has been, can we actually get the service we want through a contract with an outsider who has an incentive to sort of dial down on service levels? They want to make their margin. Uh, That's how you're going to do it. You have to be really clear that you can specify an incredibly good contract and that you can also check quality, not just quantity of service. Yeah,
0: but but, uh, but let's let, let me bring in Tom then. I mean, Tom, take us. You've been working on this for a couple of years, um, that, uh, along with many other things for us. Um, take us through what's worked in outsourcing—that so is, putting government uh, stuff, uh, you know, public services out, out or, or construction out to the private sector—and uh, what's worked in insourcing, as it is called.
4: So I think it's important to to, to bear in mind that you know this last forty years hasn't been. A complete failure in terms of this experiment with with putting things out to the private sector. Actually, there's been some pretty big benefits in terms of the efficiency and the innovation that private companies can bring. Uh, A lot of these sort of back office services, things like catering and cleaning, um, there's been really big savings when you bring the economies of scale that private companies can can bring there. Um, But also in terms of actually the private sector's ability to take risks, to use new technologies, to develop new approaches. In the prison sector, which is actually another a controversial area, we found that introducing a role for the private sector there had raised performance across the prison sector because other pri- public sector prisons had to raise their level of delivery to meet what the private sector prisons were doing. Um, so that's an interesting example of you know reasonably complicated service where they got the model right. Um, I think what we're seeing now is... That attitude of the private sector was always best, and we can just chuck it over to the fence to the private sector and they will be able to do it, was clearly wrong. And in areas like probation, that hasn't worked. In terms of what areas of insourcing we've got the best evidence of, this is a relatively new thing. You know, it's only big services are only starting to be brought in in the last five to 10 years. Um, so we don't have a huge evidence base. IT is one of the areas where we can see some really big successes. So IT has become this really core strategic area for most organizations, and actually it's difficult if you have that being done by a private company. So the DVLA brought their IT in-house about five, six years ago. They've saved about £60 million by doing that, but they've also got a much better IT capability and people are able to renew their driving licenses online, things like that, which they weren't able to do before with the private contractor. The other area where we've got a lot of examples of this and we can start to see some of the benefits is in local government. So local authorities bringing things like waste collection back in-house. We can start to see some real successes in places like Hackney in Islington where they are delivering a better quality, more reliable service, but they're also saving some money by reducing some of the management overheads, so we haven't got a huge evidence base, but we can definitely see some examples of success.
0: Kath, you've written a lot about accountability. Does this do anything? Does it change accountability? I mean, in the end, the minister, you know, should be responsible. Uh, shouldn't he or she, you know, whether the services is provided uh, by the public sector or the private?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the age old line about accountability is that, you know, the minister is still responsible for a bedpan clanging uh, in a hospital somewhere or other. But in the end, the government are always held responsible. Frankly, they're always held responsible for things that aren't (laughs) even run by the government, but happen in society. So, um, of course, they're going to be held responsible for this. What's really important and and why the Institute's work on this is so useful. Um, This has so long been a very totemic political issue. You know, this idea that private sector equals good is very much a conservative position. Public sector equals good is very much a Labour position. Tony Blair, obviously, by continuing the use of private sector, was trying to adapt that, that view. But what governments have failed to have is a really good evidence base for where it actually works. And why the IFG's work is so important is that it's just saying where is this appropriate and what is the evidence? Because governments have often struggled to be able to make the case for the outcomes they're actually trying to achieve and how they can show them. And it's only now that we're starting to get the right kind of evidence to be able to have that proper debate about where it is suitable and where it is not.
0: No, and that's something we've tried very hard to do, because obviously, and particularly at the, at the moment with people very keen to say what the public sector can do and how much money uh, ought to be put into it and everything we really want a kind of clear sense of, of when that works and when it um, is harder to to manage and when the private sector can have a role but also uh, as Tom has been describing when that fails and with that we're going to have to come to the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Tim Durant, Kath Haddon and Tom Sass. If you want to hear more IFG discussions and events, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got some terrific events for you. Do check out our all star IFG expert panel discussion, including Jill here, on where next to Brexit. Spoiler alert, it's still very complicated. And next week, I'll be talking to Joe Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, about the world's response to coronavirus and what we should expect. Separately, completely separate conversation, I'll be talking to Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales, and I'll be asking him about Wales's different response to coronavirus from that of the UK government. Please do send in your questions. You can email them to ifglive at instituteforgovernment.org.uk or by tweeting us at IFG events. You can listen at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and do leave us a review. You can find all our podcasts, all our events, all our work at our website instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So that's it for today. Enjoy the football from your sofa, or if you don't like football, enjoy an IFG report. We can offer you lots of them.